this morning um, as Ron got up to give us the Bible ring. Uh, and before we had what I think probably is the cake taker for the most energetic gospel kid spot we've ever had. Um, when you got up to give the Bible ring, you said something that really, uh, I, I don't mean to be one of those kids, but resonated with me. Um, uh, uh, you said, uh, I get to read this today. Um, and honestly, I've been so excited about bringing this whole series to you uh, as a church to be able to open the book of Revelation together and to look into this together and to grow in this together and to see how this speaks to us together, to have, to have the opportunity to follow the Spirit's leading in expounding this book to you and to myself. I've been so thrilled about. And if you, I uh, think if you'd asked me, if you'd said to me, John, uh, you have to, you can only have two chapters. You only get two uh, to preach to us from the whole book. Um, I would have initially said, no, forget you, I'm the pastor, I get to choose. Um, and, and, and if you'd really pushed me, I, I would have felt very hard-pressed, uh, and I would have struggled, uh, and I would have looked with great longing in places like Revelation 12, where we find the beating heart of discipleship in Revelation. We, I, would have, I would have gazed with great desire at Revelation 21 and 22, uh, where we, you know, that the new heavens and new earth, right? Like, how could you beat it? Um, I would have, I would have had, I would have been very sad to put down chapters two and three that we've just been through together. But I think in the end, uh, I would have chosen Revelation four and five, because here we find the central image of the book. Uh, these, these two chapters, they work together as a unit. We're, we're breaking them apart because there's so jolly much in there that we just have to. Um, but the, we, here we find the image which orientates every other image, everything else in the revelation of Jesus Christ. And here we find it just brought into the foreground and placed before us. Let me explain. The revelation of Jesus Christ is, as we've said a few times in this series, apocalyptic literature. And whilst that entails a whole host of things, you know, symbolic imagery and things like that, uh, perhaps what is most important is that it exists to help its readers to understand their present situation in light of the unseen realities of the future and to understand their present situation, moreover, in, so in light of the unseen realities of the present. The revelation is driven by the conviction that things aren't as they seem in this world. What you can deduce about this world simply by looking around you with your, with your normal average senses, um, not calling your senses average, they're all average, you know, is not everything. In fact, it's not even the most important things. And the revelation uses imagery to draw out the unseen truth about how the world is from the perspective of heaven, i.e. from the only perspective that ultimately will matter. You can think of it like this. If chapters two and three primarily contain commands for the churches to live a certain way, then the rest of the book answers the question of why. Why does it make sense to live that way in a world like this. How is the world and how will it be? And why should we not 
be afraid when the powers of the world seem to turn against the followers of Jesus? Why should we not fear? Why should we not turn inwards and close the doors and just hide? Why does it make sense not to compromise with the idols of the day, not to compromise with the sound, not to compromise the sound teaching of the gospel, not to compromise with the morality of the world, not to compromise your love of Jesus by loving other lords, lesser lords? Why? Why does it make sense for a persecuted church to keep going the way that they are going, faithfully proclaiming the good news of Jesus, like we saw in two of those churches, at least in Revelation 2 and 3? Even if it means that the persecution is going to get worse, like Jesus said it would for them. Why for us, in a culture where we, where we are on the margins, um, where, the, where the popular perception has kind of shifted uh, from it is beneficial to be a Christian right on into it's uncool to be a Christian and, 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 and is in a large way in many places turning into it is a hateful thing to be a Bible-believing Christian. Why in our day does it make sense to remain faithful and indeed to grow in faithfulness to Jesus? Why, when everything seems too hard and it's all too much, why, when your world seems to be falling apart and your life collapses, why on that day does it make sense to remain faithful to Jesus and turn your eyes to Him? Why, in the culture of the original readers and in the culture of our day and in every other culture, between the first and second coming of Jesus, do the people of Jesus have reason not to fear and in Revelation 4 and 5, we receive the central image of the book, which gives a loud answer to that question, and which is the root of every other answer to that question that we find here. In fact, not that we find here, the root of every other answer to that question with any validity. Revelation 4.2, at once I was in the Spirit, and behold... Behold, look, it's the, it's the single most repeated command of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not do, look. Why? Well, because as we see things as they are, we will be changed to be as we are meant to be. As we see things as they are, we will be changed and we will follow the second most common command of the book, do not fear. Because as we behold things as they truly are, we will be empowered for holiness, for godliness, for obedience, for joy. And to be a people who fearlessly live on the mission to make disciples of Jesus that our God has sent us onto. Look, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. The most repeated image of the revelation is the throne of God. Forty times the word is used of this throne. Forty-seven times is a total, I believe. To give you some context there, the word throne comes up 15 times in the other 26 books of the New Testament. If this series had a subtitle, which it very nearly did have, uh, it would have been, fear not, there is a throne. Would you pray with me?
Jesus, our Saviour, we pray that you would lift our eyes today to the throne of our King, that we would understand the truth that no matter how much the world may be falling apart, you are Lord and God and King. There is a God, there is, there is a throne in heaven and there is one seated on it. And so we must never lose hope. We need never fear, we need never be overwhelmed, even though we find this world so overwhelming. Because you reign. Lift our eyes today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, believe it or not, that was the introduction. Um, at, at the beginning of chapter 4, we, um, there's something we need to deal with before we get to the throne image. Um, there's this major shift that happens uh, as we begin chapter 4. Um, you probably already sensed it. We step out of the messages, the, the royal edicts, the divine oracles of chapters 2 and 3 that John received, uh, and he gets a vision, uh, and he introduces the vision with these words. He says, after this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Behold, by the way, there it is again, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Now, there is just so much in this verse, um, and, and it would be wrong for us to focus on just two words of the verse, which we really do need to deal with. Uh, but before we get to them, let me just point out a couple of things here. John sees a door open in heaven, you know, to the disobedient church in Laodicea that, that Eric very helpfully led us in seeing last week. He, Jesus said, I stand at the door and I knock. To the faithful church in Philadelphia, he said, I have set before you an open door which no one can, is able to close. Now, now John sees a door open in heaven and he hears the voice of Jesus saying, come up here, come on, and I will show you what must take place. Another door with another invitation is shown to us. It's offered to John. And through him, it's an invitation that's offered to the seven churches as they read this book. And it's offered to every Christian, every person who reads this book, to step through this door and see what's happening. An invitation to enter the heavenly throne room. And to see the world from the perspective of heaven. And he's got two more words there. He says, after this. Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And I, I desperately don't want to derail us on these two words today, but they do need to be dealt with. As is often the case, there is not just one way that faithful Christians read those words in this book. Um, Bible-believing Christians, Christians who devote their lives to the reading and the interpretation of Scripture have, have more than one way of reading those and I just want to give and remind us of a few principles that are going to be key, that are going to be important, and truths that should inform how we read this. Um, first, we, we need to read those words in their historical context. This isn't new, right? We, we touched on this several times throughout. This is kind of one of the keys to the whole revelation. Someone, uh, not from this church, once, once uh, said to me that uh, Revelation 1 to 3 speaks of the church and the majority of the rest of the book doesn't. Um, it's not for the church. 
And that, that actually, um, there's, there's more than one way to interpret these words, but that actually can't work. Because we need to remember what we saw, right? In, in, in week one of this book, and that we've reiterated a few times, this is a letter, it's an apocalyptic, prophetic letter, but it's a letter written to seven real churches in a real historical context. Not, not just the first three chapters of the book, the whole thing. Signed off as a letter at the end, in exactly the same way that every other New Testament letter is. The whole thing is addressed to specific churches in a specific context. So no matter how you interpret these words, the remainder of the book must have had meaning for the original readers. Does that, does that make sense? And it can't mean for us what it didn't mean for them. Second, we need to read this in its biblical context. And to do that, First, we need to return to a couple of the verses that we saw earlier in this book. Um, ch chapter 1, verse 1, right, introduces the whole revelation in this way. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. And there, in that verse there's a clear allusion back to, to Daniel chapter 2 and the introduction to Daniel's interpretation of the prophecy to Nebuchadnezzar. And, and in Daniel 2, Daniel introduces the explanation of the vision with this same language that John is introducing uh, this vision with. And, and I'm going to let someone else explain this to us because he did a better job than I can. Uh, Greg Beale is a great commentator, faithful commentator of the Bible and, and an expert in the Revelation. He says, what Daniel explicitly states will come to pass in the latter days, John rewords. These events will take place quickly or soon. These words do not connote the speedy manner in which the prophecy is to be fulfilled, nor the mere possibility that it could be fulfilled at any time, but the definite imminent time of fulfillment which likely has already begun in the present what daniel expected to occur in the last days john is announcing as beginning to occur now now the word beginning is really important in that sentence i point out beginning to occur now the change implies that the final tribulation, defeat of evil, establishment of the kingdom, which Daniel expected to occur in the latter days, John expects to begin in his own generation. And indeed, it has already started to happen, for John, that is. So Daniel, Daniel sees a far-off future of the, the last days, the latter days. John sees the things that will soon take place. And, and have even begun to take place. Now, this might call for a little shift in some of our thinking. Uh, many of us might hear that, and like, you know, there's an extent to which I hear that, and I go, well, that's kind of weird, I'm not in the last days. Um, you know, because my, my interpretation of what the last days means is informed by two things. One is the Bible, the other is Holy Writ. Um, one of those is accurate. Um, I'll leave it to you to deduce, let the, let the reader understand. Um, but, but all of the apostolic authors of the New Testament, uh, they all write, in fact, they all specifically refer to the times that they live in as the last days. Um, so pick one out of the hat, right? 
Actually, no, let, let's, let's just, you know, John, the author of the Revelation, we believe, and, and in, his, in his letters, his, his other letters, um, he does this. Paul does this. Peter does this. James and Luke do this uh, repeatedly. And to pick one example that isn't from any of those authors, probably, we're not really sure, uh, you know, listen to this. Long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Hebrews 1 verse 1. So, the Revelation writes, is written with the understanding that these are the last days. And then when we get to Revelation 1.19, Jesus said to John, write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. And that explains how we read this whole book, by the way. It's the same wording that we find in, in the beginning of chapter 4 here in our passage today. And sometimes people read those words after this, the things that are to take place after this, and think it's talking about after this age. But in context, and like, you might disagree with me, and that's fine, but, 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 but apply some thought to this and, 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 and let me know what you think afterwards. In context, uh, it's talking about, after this is talking about, uh, after, like, okay, should never go off the script, it's dangerous. But um, think if you were reading it as the original readers, right? And, 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 and Jesus said to John, um, the things that are and the things that are to take place after this, what would this be for you? Would you, would you interpret the this as, as then? Or would it be the things that are going to happen after this, that are going to happen after now? Get back on here. In context, considering John has just said that this is Jesus revealing what is to begin happening soon, right? As we see in verse 1 of chapter 1. Considering this is written with meaning for its original authors, considering how this would have read for the original readers, sorry, not authors, what's being said there is that the revelation deals, I believe, with the events that those churches would see beginning to happen in their time, and which would continue to occur until Jesus returned. So in context of the book, and in context of the Bible, and in context of the historical context, I believe that at the beginning of chapter 4, John is invited into the remaining visions of this book to see how the world is and how it will continue to be until Jesus returns from the perspective of heaven. Does that make sense? And if you read it differently, that's okay. There's still going to be loads for you to get out of this series. Don't bail out now. Uh, but make sure that you disagree. Let me encourage you. Let make, make sure that you disagree on the basis of what the Bible says and not because someone told you once. Not because you read it in a book with a lovely cover. So, I said I wouldn't derail us and then I derailed us, but let's get back on the rails. The throne. John sees a throne, and there is one seated on the throne. And what we need to grasp is that John is seeing here the fundamental truth which underpins all of reality. 
I've heard it referred to in a, in a whole bunch of ways. One pastor referred to it as ultimate reality. Uh, maybe I should have just stolen what he said because his, his was a good way of putting it. But I like to think of it as the truest truth. What it means, what, what I mean by that is not that truth is relative, right? Not that, uh, that there are some truths that are, you know, a bit true-ish and they change, you know. But, but um, some truth holds more permanence than other truth. Some truth holds more relevance than other truth, and some truth holds more weight than other truth. Let me explain. For instance, it is true that Anthony Albanese is the Prime Minister of Australia, but that is a temporary truth. Give it a few years, right? I'm not, I'm not making a prediction on the next election, I'm just saying. Um, it is true that I like the colour blue, but that is not a truth of high relevance to you, unless you're birthday shopping for me, I suppose. Um, but, but like, you know, and, and your favourite colour is not my favourite colour, right? Now, it's still true, but it's not a very relevant truth. It's true that basically every single person in this room will stub their toe at some point in their life, and probably already has. And it's true that basically every person, actually every person in this room will die. And those don't hold the same weight, you see. Stubbing your toe is horrible. No. And what John sees here is the truth behind all other truth. It is the truth of the greatest relevance, the greatest permanence, and the greatest weight that there is. He sees the reality which underpins all other reality. There is a throne, and there is one seated on the throne. God is on his throne. God creator, sustainer, almighty. Don't we get used to the word almighty in church and forget that it means almighty, like, like all of it. Your might, my might, all might belongs to him. He's on the throne. And if there was no God on the throne, if he was not, then nothing else would be either. All truths, all reality depend on this reality that God is on the throne. You cannot overstate the importance of this fact. For the original readers and for us as well, this changes everything, do you see? There is a throne over all creation. There is one seat of power over all others and there is one on the throne as we sung before, there's a throne beneath the name of names. There is seated on it one who reigns. What incredible truth we sing. John tries to describe what he sees, and he says that the one on the throne has the appearance of, and this is where it starts getting a little bit confusing, right? He has the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, uh, and, and around him there is a rainbow-like emerald. And, and literally, as that Bible reading was read, Owen leans over to us, and uh, sorry, Owen, I don't mean to call you out here. He goes, what's Carnelian? Um, and, and like, I had to look it up if it helps you feel better. Um, <laughs> not today. It's, it, it's hard to nail down exactly what the references to these stones are about. There's lots of stuff to say about it, but I'm not going to say it all. Uh, we're meant to get the impression of at least glory and majesty. The rainbow, it points us back to the, the rainbow imagery. Where do we find that in the Bible, right? Genesis 9 where God gave his sign of the covenant of mercy that he ha gave to Noah. 
John says that lightning and thunder emanate from this throne. Harks back, doesn't it, to Mount Sinai, where Israel saw God's presence and they were terrified. This is the God who will judge all of creation. This is an awesome picture in the truest sense of the word awesome. When John talks about the seven spirits of God that are before the throne, what he means is the full presence. That's a, it's a number of completion. We've run into this already, actually, in chapter 1. The full, complete presence of the fully powerful, completely seeing, completely knowing spirit of God is there, fully represented. He's not saying God has seven spirits. And John says that before the throne, there is a sea of glass like crystal. We'll run into this a little bit in Re the Revelation, so it's worth explaining this one in a bit of detail. Um, the sea in the Revelation represents the forces of chaos and evil. It's a symbol. You know, um, it's actually, it's, a, it's an ancient symbol. This wouldn't have been surprising to the original readers. Uh, it was common to think of the sea as the place of chaos. And, uh, you know, that's why uh, when we get to chapter 13, I think the, the, the beast comes out of the sea, right? That's why when we get to chapter 21, there was no more sea in the, rev in the new heavens and the new earth because evil is done away with. Uh, he doesn't have anything against the ocean. York Peninsula rejoice, right? But <coughs> we have almost nothing left. But um, symbolically, it represents the powers of chaos and of evil. And John, stepping into the heavenly throne room in a world that still has chaos and evil in it, right? Sees that God has complete victory and power over the forces of evil. They are stilled by this God. They are like glass because of this God. They... they they're still not done away with in this age, but they do not pose a threat to God. In fact, I don't want to dive too headlong into next week's sermon, because like I said, we split this apart for a reason, um, because we can't cover it all. But next week, uh, when, when we see this in the context of the full vision of chapters 4 and 5, right, it will see that it's because of the slain lamb, because of, that Jesus has died, because he has carried the weight of sin, because he died for you and for me and for the world, he has stilled the ocean of evil like glass. And John sees four living creatures around this throne, right? And, and there is so much speculation about these guys that we're not going to dive into all of it. They clearly hark back to some Old Testament stuff in Isaiah and Ezekiel, the cherubim and the seraphim. But, but the fact that one of them is a lion, one of them is an ox, one of them has a face of a man, and one of them is like an eagle in flight uh, is actually really significant. Uh, there's, there's an old rabbinic saying that says that um, the eagle is the mightiest of the birds, the ox is the mightiest of the domesticated animals, the lion is the mightiest of the wild animals, and man is the mightiest of them all. So these four living creatures, they represent all living things. They re represent um, animate creation. They represent the living creation. And without ceasing, they sing worship to God. 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. We've sung those words a few times already today now. All creation sings the praises of the God who is seated on the throne. We might not see it, but this is a heavenly reality right now. He alone is holy, holy, holy. He alone is Lord. He alone is almighty. He alone was there in the beginning. He is always there and he will always be on his throne. Now, can you see how important all of this would have been for the original readers to understand? How empowering this was for them, how much peace this would have given in the chaos of the world for them. Remember their context, right? They are hard-pressed on every side by the powers of their day. All around, their culture declares to them that their God is just one among the many, not even a particularly significant one, not even an officially recognized one. That there is a true king, his name is Caesar. That there is a God who must be worshipped by everyone in the empire, and his name is Caesar. And that believing in the one true God removes you from the center. This was the message that, that the images of their day, that the society of their day, the culture of their day would have given them. Worshipping the one true God from the perspective of their culture put you on the peripheries. You're not important if you worship that God. Doesn't that feel a little bit the same today? I mean, I'm not saying we live in the same, we're not in ancient Rome, there's a lot of differences, but increasingly so, right? Doesn't, doesn't it feel today like the most important things happening in our culture are, are not really looked at as things that happen involving Christians? Certainly not what happens here on a Sunday, right? Like, look at us. This is a, this, our culture does not look here and think, wow, that's important. That is central. Doesn't it feel like the power and the center of our culture is far from where we are? In fact, the power and the center of our culture, as our culture sees it, are far from where we are. Doesn't it feel like there is no sense of security and certainty for the future today? Doesn't it often feel like there's no cause for confidence for the people of God? Don't we hear again and again and again about the church reducing in size, you know, the, the nuns, growing in our society. I'm not talking about Catholic nuns. I'm talking about, the, in the census form, nuns. No religion. I read a fun stat about that recently, actually. Like, sorry. But uh, that, that revealed to me why that is just so wildly inaccurate. Um, because I, I looked up the demographic data for Middleton and it had like 150 people attending the Uniting Church and like 150 at the Anglican Church. And I was like, now I see who the people are who are, who are marking themselves now as no religion. Um, I don't need to explain that, right? Um, everything tells us that we are not at the center Everything tells us there's no cause for confidence, there's no cause to be not afraid, that there's cause for us to believe that it's all going to come apart, right, and that we're going to cease to exist, right, and yet the revelation gives us truer truth than this. 
It gives us unseen reality. Things are not as they seem, Jesus says. Remember, this is given first to John on Patmos. Like, you might look at your life situation and think, man, but God doesn't know how hopeless my situation looks. But John's literally a slave on a slave island that he's been sent to because he declared the name of Jesus. He's an exile. It doesn't mean our situations will look fantastic. God's not promising you prosperity in this world in that sense. It means that even when the world falls apart as it will, even if the culture turns hard against Jesus, if you lose your job, if, if, if every institution won't serve you because you're a Christian, if it turns hard against the followers of Jesus, even if it feels like evangelism isn't welcome, isn't okay, or is even outlawed, and people don't want to hear about Jesus, the truth of the reign of God should give us great confidence even then. He has overcome all evil. He has defeated all enemies. His will is done and he works all things for the good of those who love him. There is a God, there is a throne and there is one seated on the throne. All creation is bent in, in worship ultimately towards that throne. You know, this isn't just about if persecution comes. You have hard days, right? You have days when it feels like that thing that should have happened a bazillion weeks ago still hasn't happened and it's just overwhelming. You have days where you get up and you're like, I just want to go back to bed. This is not worth it. You have days when you feel overwhelmed. You have nights when you don't sleep. You have weeks in your life when a family member is coming apart. You don't know what to do about that. And it seems like the whole world is collapsing. You have health crises. And, and, and as your life collapses in any one of these ways or all of them at the same time or any number of others, there is a God on the throne who will see it through for your good in the end. And around the throne, we skipped an image there, did you notice? Around the throne, John sees 24 thrones with 24 elders wearing white robes and golden crowns. These guys, these guys represent, I'm convinced, they represent the heavenly presence of the people of God from every age. There's a, there's a symmetry here, right? You know, what, what do you got in the Old Testament? 12, 12 sons of Israel that become the 12 tribes of Israel. What do you got in the New Testament? You've got the 12 apostles, right? And, 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 and here we get 24 elders representing the one unified church of God. They are the redeemed. And, and they are the closest thing in the picture to the presence of God. They sit just around it, just around Him. The closest thing to the center of all of reality is the heavenly representation of the people of God. Catch that? That's you, if you're a believer in Jesus. Did you know this? That if you're a believer, nothing can remove you from the center. Now, you're not the very center. Don't get me wrong here. God is the center. 
and right around God is his people. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, right, he says that you have been raised with Jesus and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He says it in the present tense in a way that makes our heads go poof. Uh, but, but here we see that work out, right? It's not physically true of us yet. Praise and rejoice. This isn't the heavenly throne room and how it's going to look, how it looks even. But spiritually, you are held in heaven if you follow Jesus. This isn't just a statement of fact, though. This is an invitation to take part in the central reality, the truest truth, the eternal activity of all of creation. Yeah, this is an invitation to those churches in, in the Revelation who, who were compromising and going, oh, there's much more important things. We need, to, we, need to, you know, we need to have a little bit of the culture and a little bit of Jesus because they're both important. And, 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 and John's saying, no, look, the center of all of creation is where you have been placed. There is nothing more important. Give your life to this. John says that whenever the living creatures worship the God who is on the throne. Now, when did we read that the living creatures worship the God who is on the throne? Well, we just read it, right? He, they do it unceasingly. Whenever they do, so do the elders. Pause for a sec. Let me ask a question. What do you think you do when you come here on a Sunday morning? What's, what's the point of all this? What, what, what happens when we get here? Great chance for a cuppa. Depending on the standards of coffee you've had in the past, mediocre chance for a cuppa. Like, um, lovely chance to see a few friends. Sing a few lovely little jigs. Ditties. What happens when we praise God here? Here, in Revelation 4, we find out. We take part in transcendence. We, we take part in the very beating heart of reality. We, we take part in what is most truly true when we worship our God together. We step into the heavenly places and fulfill the role that God has set for us since before the beginning of time. And He's, he's set it aside for us at the heart of everything that there is. That is what we step into when we praise God together here. Do you see how big this is, what we do here? This is, this is gathering around the center and singing the praises of the one who sits on the throne in the center. Just one more thing. As we do it, as we do that, as we worship, both here on a Sunday and as we worship with our lives throughout the week, we necessarily take part in rebellion. The elders, they sing this song. The elders are us, by the way, remember? So, so this is our song. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and they were created. This is our song. 
we worship the creator of all things, the one to whom belongs all glory and honor and power. And, and, and one commentator, he points out this really interesting fact there. He says, the first words of the hymn are taken from the political language of the day. You are worthy, greeted the entrance of the emperor in his triumphal procession. And our Lord and God was introduced into the cult of emperor worship by Domitian himself. And yet, Jesus claims the words that have been stolen from him by this little emperor. And the people of God declare there is only one on the throne. And it ain't you, Domitian. There is only one to whom belongs all glory and honor and power. And there is no government that you have ever seen. Let me ask you, have you given your glory and your power and your honor to anything else? Now, this is a question to keep coming back to as a Christian. Your worship belongs only to Jesus. Don't sell yourself short. Does your life focus on the power of government? You know, this is an easy trap for Christians, right? And for anyone, actually. But, but you know, for us, you know, we can, we can focus in on the power of government and think, wow, you know, if I want to make this world a better place, what I need to do is I need to focus on making the government a better government, you know? Governments aren't evil, but they're not the solution. Does your life focus on the glory of sports, either sports that you play or sports that you watch someone else play. Get your head around how that can be a meaning in life. But <laughs> it is so common. Does your life focus on honoring yourself? You know, if you want to answer this question, just take a week where you go, hey, how much time do I give to these things? What are the things that I give the most of my time and money and effort to? Does your life put anything at the center except for the one true God who is on his throne please do take some time to ask this question this week what is the center of my life what what functionally works out as the center it's easy to answer the question and say yeah god's the center of my life but like if if your whole day consists apart from him then it's not true What gets the king's share of my time? What gets the king's share of my love? What gets the king's share of my praise? There's only one king. What does your life reveal to be at the center? If you're not a believer in Jesus, if you're, if you're not a follower, there's going to be something there at the center. And it's going to be something that you are giving the role of the center that it can never fulfill. You put it there because it's going to satisfy you and it's going to make a good king. It's going to make a good ruler for your life and it's never going to do it. It's always going to come up short. Your money, a, a boy, a girl, a man, a woman, you know, uh, your spouse, like your, your work, your house, any other created thing, your, your sports, your, like whatever, it cannot fill the gap at the center of you. There is only one God at the center of all of creation who belongs at the center of you. There is only one who has stilled all of the powers of darkness and the sea of evil through his death on the cross. 
and he invites you in through the door to know him, to know the one to whom belongs all praise and honor and glory and power. Join the rebellion. I feel like Star Wars right now, but like, like, join, give your life to Jesus. There is nothing else worth it. And he is worthy. If you're a believer in Jesus, you still need to ask this question, right? You still need to do this. You still need to be watchful and keep God at the center. Are there other things that are calling you to compromise that say, hey, you need to give your life to this because this is going to give you a great life. This is going to be important. This is meaningful. Have you ever noticed how everything on telly spends its time trying to make you believe that it's meaningful because it's not? Like, I mean, like my favorite example is renovation shows. You ever watched a renovation show and, and like, like, you know, there's a dude and he's painting a wall. It's like, dun, 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 and he's painting a wall. There could be nothing less meaningful. Aside from, I suppose, a shot of a guy not painting a wall. But like footy, notice how much music happens in footy to make you feel like footy's important. It is a bunch of guys kicking a ball. We can do that now. <laughs> it's not going to change the world. Are there things that you are putting in the center? Are there things that are calling you to compromise, to put them there, rebel against the world by worshiping the one true God? Turn to him Turn to him and tell him, Lord, I've put other things there at the center, but today I recognize that this, what is most truly true, I recognize the truth, you are the center of reality. And I want my life to worship you, so by the blood of Jesus, forgive me and bring me back in. Take the chance today, throw it aside and join back in to the praise of the one true God, fully and wholeheartedly. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, our God, you are seated on your throne, and there is none other. Lord Jesus, you have stilled the powers of evil and darkness. You have conquered them in mighty triumph. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive all glory and honor and power for all things were created by you and by your will they existed and were created. Lord, we confess we lose sight of it. We lose track of the fact that there is one at the center. Lord, if there's anyone here who has never known the king of the universe, I pray that they would be able to cast themselves on Jesus today and say, Lord, I need you and I accept your forgiveness. I'm sorry for my sin. I repent. Turn me to you and give me your life. Be at the center for me. Lord, I pray it for all of us. 
that we would be a people who know what it is to turn away from the, the idols of this world, turn away from the compromises of our lives and see that there is only one God at the center and he is worthy where nothing else is. Lord, join us in the song of all of creation, the praise of our King, who is holy, holy, holy. Amen.